in that show that's on television called Undercover Boss. I don't know if is there an Australian version of it. Yeah. I've only seen the American version of it, but it's a it's a really moving show. A lot of times, you what happens is that the CEO of a large company goes undercover in the workplace, and so if you, the head of McDonald's in America goes and works flipping burgers in a McDonald's store or something like that, and he's undercover. So the staff have absolutely no idea that this is the CEO of the company. And he, and most of the time, the CEOs are pretty ordinary at the coalface in the workplace. But what the CEO does at the end is that he brings them to the head office and they sit in the CEO's office expecting some meeting and the guy that they've been working alongside with walks out. And he blesses most of them. He finds out about their life story and... Um, speaks into their lives the things that he saw it's a really great show a lot of times it's very moving there's a lot of the staff are struggling and he pays for their kids to go to college or whatever it might be but it's a, it's it's it was a great way i thought today to um introduce the topic that we're going to talk about because what if jesus went undercover and came into catalyst church today what would he say when he looked at our worship, what did he say, what would he say when he when he examined what our vision was and what we were on about? What what would he say? What would his report be when we went and sat in his office? Would it be well done, good and faithful servants? Your hearts are pure. You're, you're dedicated to me. You're living a life of vibrant faith. Or would he say, mm, only seventy percent, guys? There's some work to be done. There's some improvement to be made. The interesting thing is. What would happen when Jesus came to church? What would his report be? And we're going to have a look at some letters to some churches in Revelation. There were seven letters that um, the Apostle John wrote as a result of a vision. And they were sent to the churches in Asia Minor, in a place we, we now know is Turkey. And um, what I've noticed in Western culture is that we do a lot of church shopping. When we go looking for a church, we go and first impressions are very important. And so we need to have, you know, a nice bulletin and we need to have welcomers at the door that greet. And there's a lot of criteria that we as people will look for to decide whether this church is right for us, whether this is going to be our spiritual home. And I wonder if our checklist would be the same as Jesus' checklist. Because we're going to look at a church this morning that on the surface level, you would probably go there and go, wow, this church is a happening place. There's buzz and stuff here. Lots of ministries happening. Lots of great things being done. But at the end of the day, Jesus said, listen, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to make you extinct as a church because you're missing the very heart of love. You've lost something that's so integral to being a church. And as we look through these letters to these churches, we find oftentimes what Jesus says about them probably isn't what we might say about them, looking at face value at surface level. It's a really interesting exercise. Let me just fix this up. So there's seven churches that are written to. The first church and the last church are in great peril. They're in great danger. And when Jesus comes, he speaks into the life of the church. He commends them for certain things. But then he says, look, you've got a problem here. If you don't fix the problem, basically the word language is, I'm going to snuff you out. 
I'm going to take the candle that burns in your church and I'm going to cut it out. So he gives them uh, um, some real hard warnings. So that's the church at Ephesus and Laodicea. Then there's the second church and the sixth church in those letter series, they're grand churches. They're churches that when Jesus assesses and does a, um, an evaluation of them, he says, guys, you're doing so well. In really difficult circumstances, when there's lots of theological error around, there's two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that Jesus says you, there's nothing that he, that he criticizes. And then the three middle letters, three, four, and five, they're a really mixed bag, these churches. There's nothing really great and there's nothing really terrible. They're just a little bit neutral, a little bit off, the, off, off track. And so Jesus comes and he speaks into their life. And so these letters were written for the specific context that these churches found themselves in. And these were troubled times, remember? The gospel was, was spreading out into Asia Minor and there was a lot of contention. There was a lot of competition for Christianity. A lot of uh, sects and wicked cults were out there and the Christian church was standing in the midst of all that trying to raise up a standard for God. And many of those churches were falling over under the persecution and the pressure. But some of them were standing strong and standing true to their convictions. Interestingly, when you study these seven letters to the seven churches, some theologian, some bright spark, has come up with this theory that the seven letters were written for certain periods of time in history. So the first letter to the church at Ephesus was written for the very, very early church. And then the second letter for another period of time, so that the last letter, the letter to the church at Laodicea, would be for the end times. And they were the lukewarm Christians, the ones that Jesus was going to spit out of his mouth. Now, it's a great theory, but how do you decide which time frame fits which era? Okay, we could get the first one right and we could get the last one right, but where do we designate where the change comes? So the churches in the middle were for the Middle Ages. And I think when you look at it, it doesn't really stack up as a theory. It's just too hard to decide. But what we do see in these churches, that even though they're written for that specific church, they're written in such a way that they do the circuit to all the other churches. So when you were at the church of Ephesus, you would get the letter that was sent to the church at Sardis as well. So you weren't excluded from saying, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Because the same truths and the same principles, the same corrections of God applied to each of those seven churches. But I think if we looked at every church on the face of the planet today, that letter could apply. One of those seven letters would apply to the churches today. So we could go down to Beaconsville Baptist Church and one of those letters would apply. We could go to Catalyst and one of these letters would apply. But not only do they apply to us corporately, they apply to us individually. Isn't it great that when you read a letter to the church at Ephesus that was written 2,000 years ago, it still has context for my life today. Oh, that's nice backing music. The beauty of the church, these letters is that you can't argue with it because it's Jesus is the one that's been the decider of the truth here. And we can learn so much. There's a, a little verse in each one of the, the letters that says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, I can't see anyone with our ears today. So the implication is that as we read this, it's not for us to go, ha ha, look at the church in Ephesus back there. What a mess they were. 
It's actually to say, God, does this apply to me? Does this apply to Catalyst Church? Are, are we guilty or are we doing well like some of these churches were? So it has a specific application for us all. So the first letter was sent to Ephesus and the, the church, churches go in a clockwise circuit. Second is Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and lastly, Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be liars. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to, re to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers all, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's a pretty scary proposition, and wouldn't it be to be the pastor of that church and receive that letter? You know, when someone handed you the envelope and said, this is from Jesus Christ, this is for your church. I don't know that I'd be too keen to get the, the letter knife open <laughs> and read what was in there. But that was the reality of what happened here. Jesus came and spoke revelation, spoke truth into all of these churches. Now, churches, Ephesus, we know from Scripture, was birthed out of a riot, remember? That Paul came, he preached the gospel, he argued for the faith, and, and so many people got saved that the people that were selling idols in the temple started to lose their income. And they got riled up about this, and there was a great riot in the city. So Ephesus, that we know when we read the letter to the church at Ephesus that Paul wrote, was a fantastic church in the beginning. Really switched on for God, very enlightened, very much moving in the power and, and the spirit of God. They were a great church. And yet when we read now, we see that they're right on the knife's edge of either coming back into what God had for them or losing it. And they had to repent. Now, Ephesus was on the main seaport. This was like a gateway into that whole region of Asia. This was a vibrant city. We're talking a really um, lots of trade, lots of commerce, lots of people coming through, very multicultural, lots of religion, lots of worship happening there. And what was the feature of that town of Ephesus was the temple to Diana, the fertility god. We're talking one of the seven wonders of the world. You've all seen the, the Parthenon in Rome and how big that is. Well, this building was seven times bigger. It was huge. Now, this was, a, this was an ugly culture because it was a very sexual culture. If you went to the temple of Artemis of Diana you would find legalized prostitution. So people would come and they would act out sexual acts to please the gods, like anything went. This was a very permissive society. And then you had a church in the midst of that trying to stand for truth and integrity. It was a tough, tough gig. 
they were really in a, in a difficult place. Um, it was almost like the Las Vegas Strip. Can you imagine trying to set up a church in, in Las Vegas? That's what it was like. It was just you could do what was right in your own eyes. Anything was permissive and, and it was horrible. That's the goddess Diana. She, whenever she's represented, she has breasts all over her to, to, you know, to demonstrate her fertility. And so all sorts of things would happen in that temple place, in the open, sacrifice, um, sexual acts, anything went. And yet that's where the church was birthed. It's not going to go backwards, Brad. Can you? There we go. Now remember, the church at Ephesus had Paul plant the church, then Priscilla and Aquila came afterwards, and then Apollos, and then we know that the apostle John ended up there at the end of his life. So they had a pretty good leadership team. This was a church that had invested into it a lot a lot of great men and women of God, a lot of truth, and they knew a lot of things. They were a very dynamic church. And then this letter comes. And it's written to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now that's an interesting statement to write because it either means that there is a guardian angel for every church that exists. And this letter came down through the angel's perspective and was given to that guardian angel to give to the church. Or another interpretation is that to the angel at the church at Ephesus, right, means that the angel is a substitute for the word pastor or the leader of the church. It can be either or, because either way we look at it, it applies because we're really looking at a godly perspective of what Jesus sees in the church. And whether that came through an angel or comes through the leader of the church, it still applies. But what it says, or what it really reminds us of, is that it's an ultimatum, that God is going to act if we act. And if we don't act, he'll still act to do some things. So this was pretty scary stuff. Got to take it very seriously. So these are the words of him who holds the seven stars, in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this is a, a each one of these letters when it begins has a, a very vivid illustration of some characteristic or quality of Jesus Christ. And this letter is saying that God is all powerful and he is ever present. He holds the seven stars in his hand. And the Greek language is that he holds these churches and the leaders of these churches in such a way that nothing can get them out of his grip. They are protected in every way possible. That when Jesus says, I am Lord over this church, he is the protector. And no power, no principality, no ruler, no authority can take or influence that church unless God allows that to happen. So we're reminded from the very beginning of a very vivid sense that God is Lord over this church and his power is there, but also that his presence is there, that he walks among the seven golden lampstands, meaning he's in the midst of those churches. He knows what's going on. He's there. He's right on the cutting edge of it. And he says this to the church at Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and you have not grown weary. Now that's a pretty good report, eh? You'd feel pretty pleased if you heard that. I know your deeds, 
I know your hard work and your perseverance. This was a church that was laboring very hard. They were spending themselves on extending the kingdom of God. Like it would be a church that you went to that had kids ministry, youth ministry, family ministry, elderly ministry. Like it, it was alive in the sense that a lot was happening. And Jesus was saying, you're doing a good work in the sense that you're busy and you're active for the kingdom and that you're persevering. And we all know that in any ministry concept, context, we need people that are willing to persevere, to do the long haul, to stay the course. It's so easy to give up in ministry. In the context of where this church was established, it would have been very easy just to walk away because they were under persecution. The society was making it very difficult for the church. They were restricted from trading. They weren't allowed to buy things because of their faith. So this was not an easy thing to say you're a Christian in the middle of Ephesus. This was tough Christianity. It was hard to do. And Jesus said, I know that you don't tolerate wicked men, that you've tested people and you've found them out and, and you've persevered and you've endured hardship. Lots of ticks in the boxes. They were enthusiastic. They were enduring. They were enlightened. And they hated. That's pretty strong language. Like Jesus isn't... Uh, what you call, he doesn't use language that's, you know, correct. He cuts straight to the point and he says, I hate the Nicolaitans and I'm glad that you do too. Now, the Nicolaitans said this, you can be a Christian and you can do whatever you want. You can have adulterous relationships. You can have sex outside marriage. You can do anything you want because Christianity, it just blends in beautifully. It's all about love. It's all just about a beautiful sexual experience that we're all on a journey of. And it was just like this was so watered down that anything goes. And the Christian church stood up in the midst of that and said, no, that's error. Doctrinally, that's wrong. Theologically, that's wrong. Relationally, that's wrong. We can't accept that. It's not truth. And yet when I hear about what's happening in Christian circles today and I hear about young people, they're starting to say it's okay to try before you buy. In Christian circles, that's starting to happen. We're starting to hear a compromise of God's truth. Now, God rewarded them for standing strong and standing firm. And I give you this warning. In our nation, we are going to be undermined and undermined and undermined. It is coming. Let me give you a very clear warning. If you're not going to stand in integrity for God, get out now. Because it's coming, it's coming hard, and it's coming fast. No one respects what the Christian says anymore. We watched a program on Q&A a couple of weeks ago where the head of the Anglican Church made a statement about submission in marriage. And you should have seen the panel mock that man. They tore him to pieces and made a mockery of his faith. Now, thankfully, that man had great love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. He handled himself brilliantly. The lady that responded to him taunted him. She mocked him. I don't know that I could have stood with what she did to him. But it just showed me we, we are a minority group and nobody respects what we say. And yet he, from my perspective, he came out with great dignity. And yet all the other people in the audience were sort of thinking, this guy's an idiot. Like he, his opinion is so antiquated. It's so ancient. It's, it's like, mate, get with the times, buddy. There's no submission in marriage anymore. And his, his ex explanation of submission in marriage was beautiful. It was spot on. And, and he did it really lovingly. And yet his opinion was out the window. And I think that's, that, that's 
That was happening in this church. They were having to come against a society that said, you're wrong. That's silly. That, that, that's just out of fashion anymore. This is Vanity Fair. This is Las Vegas. You can do what you want. It's all good in God's sight. And they were saying, no, it's not. It's not. There is a righteous standard that you cannot compromise. We've got to stick to that. So they were a healthy church because they hated sin in its members. They loved the sinner, but they hated the sin. They stood against false doctrine and they stood against the movement that wanted to water down purity and holiness. That's a pretty good church in my mind. That's a church that was doing it tough but standing strong. Yet Jesus said, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, Mark, if the church doesn't get back to its first love, you will be extinct. I will wipe you out. That's very strong language. Very strong language. I'm sure there was a lot of repentance happening in the church at Ephesus as a result of getting that letter. So despite what was occurring on the surface level, like we could have gone in and said, hey, this church is pretty good, really. Like there's lots happening there. They're standing strong doctrinally. Um, we could have given them lots of big ticks. And yet when Jesus assessed that church, he said, despite all those good things, there's something happening here that's fundamentally intrinsic to a life of faith that's pure and right. And it's the only thing that Jesus sees wrong. Just one thing. And yet it's enough for him to bring that church to extinction. Now, the church at Ephesus had been established for about 40 years when they wrote, when they got this letter. So it wasn't the Christians that birthed the church and were saved into the church. It's now the second and the third generation Christians that don't have that flame and that fire in their heart like they used to. And Jesus is saying that you've got to get back to that. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Not, this was not an accident. You know, you did not forget your first love. You've forsaken it. You've walked away. You've, you've intentionally not done the things that you should have done that keep your faith vibrant and alive. They left the love of the Lord. It was something that eroded gradually because they stopped doing the things that they did at first, the things that kept their, their love life for Jesus vibrant and alive and enthusiastic. And I would use the word infatuation. This is the young lady. <laughs> this is the point in the message where I tell you how I was infatuated with my beautiful wife. Thanks, Jonah. Now, I remember when I first met Cheryl, I was infatuated. She's going to get embarrassed. You want to leave the room, darling? That's fine. But I can only describe in human terms how it felt. Oh, yeah, we'll take the photo off. Sorry. I didn't ask her permission because I knew the answer would be no. But Cheryl used to work in Baronia and I used to work in Bayswater and I would like go and buy flowers and I had keys to her car, so I'd open her car and put chocolates in there and flowers. And I used to love on her because I was infatuated. I was pretty bad. 
Remember a song that Steve Perry wrote called Oh Sherry? That was my song for sure. I used to put that up in the car. Oh Sherry. Pretty embarrassing, really. But you do silly things when you're in love, right? You, you, you are just, you don't think in your right mind because you're just overwhelmed and you want to be with that person all the time. It's exciting. It's enthusiastic. You know, it's not hard work. It's naturally, you want to be in that place with that person. And I think that's what Jesus was saying. Look, you've got a lot happening in your church, but, but at a heart level, you've lost the infatuation for me. You've lost that, that love. And I know when we're talking about people that have been Christians for 10, 15, 20 years, that can happen. Once upon a time, we'd be at every prayer meeting and we'd be really excited and nothing could stop us from being there. 20 years down the track, oh, you know, I'm tired. I don't really feel like going out tonight. You have lost your first love. Remember back to a time, and I don't know if you've all had a time like this when you first came to Saving Faith and it was like the whole world just changed. Every, you saw everything differently. You wanted to be at church. You wanted to be around Christian people. You couldn't get enough of CDs on the radio in the car and DVDs. And there was just this overwhelming sense of being in love with Jesus. And the whole world looked different. But somehow it waned and it grew cold and your heart got a bit dusty and dry. And, and so you still come to church. You're still there. You're still part of it all. But you wouldn't be able to be here saying, I'm infatuated. I'm over the top about God. Nothing's too much to ask. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to say. Their love had become sort of sterilized, a bit sterile. How many marriages do you hear that, you know, when the kids are starting to get older, the, the couples are growing apart and, you know, that middle age comes along and they discover that that love that they once had, that flame of passion and is, is, is changed. Well, did it happen overnight? What happened? They stopped doing the things that they used to do. They kept that relationship vibrant and alive. And that's what, what Jesus is saying. You used to do some things that were really important that kept this fire stoked up. Go back and do them again. Go back to the things that you used to do that, that were so vibrant and alive. Go back. Go back. Go back to them. Yeah, well, oh, hang on a minute. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I did see a few in the photo album and went, no, no, won't get them out. It's embarrassing. Isn't it funny how when, how when you look back, you think, geez, why did I dress like that? And why why did I have hair like that? And then you look at yourself in the mirror today and say, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty cool. I'm pretty fashionable. And I know in 10 years' time, I'll be looking back going, why did you used to wear those things? And why? You know, it's amazing how we change over time. But Jesus is saying, remember, remember back. Remember back to your, the time when you got saved. Remember back to a place in your spiritual journey where, where it was vibrant. What was happening? Why was it good? Remember, it's okay to stir up the things, the memories. And then Jesus says, repent. Turn away from the things that are dry and barren. Turn away. Now, does that mean when the when the Ephesians read this that they were going to get on their knees and burst into tears and feel remorseful? And that might have happened. But I think this was a more clinical, conscious 
head decision to say, we need to make some changes in our life to do things that we used to do that put us in a position of dynamic love relationship with God. I don't know that it was a big teary session as much as it was a reckoning of their hearts and minds to say, I've got to go back and stir up the flame again. It wasn't just a, a momentary decision. It was a life change to go back. Now, here's something I want to ask you. When you fall in love, and it's like the honeymoon period, should that end? Yes and no. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't end. It should grow deeper. It will change. But do I love Cheryl any less now? It's commitment, yeah. But your love for your for your wife or your husband expands. It it grows. When you've seen your wife give birth to children, I mean that changes your your love for your wife when you see what they go through. <laughs> Praise God I'm not a woman, you know. <laughs> but I don't I don't think the honeymoon should end. It only ends because we stop doing the things that we did at the beginning. We stop going on dates. We stop doing the romantic things. We stop buying the flowers. We stop doing the chocolates. We stop going out for dinner. We stop the things that once kept it vibrant and we compensate with other things that just don't bring the same result. And that's what Jesus was saying. Go back to the things that did get you alive spiritually. Put them back in your life and you'll get back to that place of love again. Deanna's gone now. She's off on a tangent. Interesting thing, in the second century, there was a, a, a guy called Ignatius who wrote a letter about the church at Ephesus. This is about 130 years later, after they'd received this letter. He wrote a letter commending the church at Ephesus for their enthusiasm and their love for the Lord. So they did it. They went back. They repented. They put those things back in their life, and the church went on but they didn't stay going on because in the third century, we lose all information about the church at Ephesus. And if you go to Ephesus today, you'll probably find two Christian people, maybe three. It's gone. They've lost. It doesn't exist anymore. So they started to go back and, and their love and their enthusiasm grew, but then it stopped. I think we need to come back to that place in our relationship with God where we're in rapture. Does that make sense? And and that's different for each of us because for some people, they didn't have that sort of honeymoon encounter with God. They came raised up through the church and it was just something that you did as part of your, your parents' faith and your parents' faith became your faith and, and it's just something you've always done. Whereas if you've come out of the world and you've and you really reckon with how much God loves you, the faith is different. But can we both have the same love experience? Absolutely. And I think that's what Jesus was saying. At the end of the day, I don't care how busy your church is. I don't care how much you're doing. If you don't love me, if this isn't out of a heart of love, what's the point? It's almost it's almost offensive to God, isn't it? Well, I'm just married to you, Cheryl, because that's what we've got to do. You know, we're stuck in this now. We've got four kids. 
there's no other option. We'll just we'll just we'll just see it out. I know he loves you, but you know. <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> I've lost it now. That was a hypothetical, okay. But but would would you want to be on the end of a love relationship where you knew that your partner didn't have a flame burning in their heart for you? That would be a horrible place to be in. Okay? I know my wife loves me because she washes my underpants and my my socks and she feeds me and she cares for me. What's that? Get back to my name. <laughs> Boy, am I going to cop it tonight. Yeah. But I think you can honestly be in a place, in a human relationship where there is a flame and a fire. And spiritually the same applies. And Jesus was just saying to this church at Ephesus, look, all these things are wonderful, but the heart of love has got to be there. And that's the question we've got to ask ourselves as a church. Like when worship starts, what are we doing? Are we just singing because we sing? You can. It would look good for someone walking outside. Oh, all these people are singing. Yeah, they're into it. But maybe in here we're not. And music's not everybody's cup of tea. I get that. But it's the worship of God. It's the sense of wanting to be in worship, wanting to be part of church, wanting to be in an activate group, wanting to be in the midst of all God is doing and be right at the front of it. And saying, I want to be on the front line. I don't want to miss out. I want to be there. It's that sort of scenario. Not duty, but a love delight. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's the word, delight. It's not a burden to come to church. Well, I don't think it is. I love being here. love being in worship. I don't care if they worship for five hours. I'd be happy. Because it's, <laughs> because it's a love relationship. But if you don't have that, then everything that we do in church is just plain hard work because it's not coming out of love. It's coming out of duty and responsibility. And I think that's what Jesus was just differentiating about. He was just saying, guys, there's a choice here. Do it out of love. Don't do it out of duty. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that you had the courage to write to that church and call them call them on what they'd lost. But Lord, the beauty of what you do is that you never criticize or condemn us and, or correct us and then not give us an option to change. That's why I love you so much, Lord, because you're the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. That when we do grow cold and weary and, and heart of heart and sometimes we lose that cutting edge in our faith, it's only one decision away from coming back. It's only one cry of our heart, Lord, renew me. Take me back to the well. Take me back to that place where those living waters flow and I feel alive and it's fresh and there's vitality. And Lord, I think that's what you want to see in us. And Lord, we see it in you Christians when they get saved and they start to understand how much God loves them and everything in the church is new and they ask so many questions and it's just, boy, it's full on, but but it's beautiful to watch. It's something so special to witness when people have that passion for you and that love relationship with you. And Father, forgive us if we ever try to pour cold water on that enthusiasm and that flame. Father, may we be a church that stirs one another up and has the courage to say, 
Come on, you seem like you've lost that love relationship with the Lord. Father, today there's going to be an opportunity for us to repent. Because that's what you called them to do and that's what you're going to call us to do. And Lord, I just pray today if there's people here who's, who know, we know, we know where we're at with you, Lord. We know whether it's a love relationship of, of enthusiasm and infatuation or it's, or it's grown cold. Lord, no one can change that but us. And I pray, Father, that today that you would help us to come in humility and with courage in our hearts and just say, Lord, renew in me a passion for you. Lord, I'll choose to go back and do some of those things that were once very special in my life, that stirred my faith, that activated my faith. And I know when we make that decision that the one who calls is faithful, he will do a new work within us. Even now this morning, he'll stir up the coals of our heart. He'll break off the hardness. Well, we've got to come. We've got to acknowledge that we've forsaken our first love and call it what it is. Lord, I failed you. But I hear Jesus saying, well, come back. Come back. Come back to my arms. Come back to that place of love relationship where you open the word of God and you can't get enough. When you pray and it's just so alive. Lord, that's relationship that we all need. Father, this morning as we respond to you, Lord, I don't quite know where we're going to go this morning, but I just pray that you would get us out of our comfort zone if it's become comfortable. And stir our hearts afresh today, I pray, Lord. Lord, would you move mightily amongst us. Why don't we sing that song, The Well, again this morning? If you need to, um, don't like the word doing business with God, but if you need to... Um, do something in your life today to bring you back to that place, then can I encourage you to, to take a step of boldness today and just come to the front and make a declaration. No one will come and pray with you. This is just between you and God, but I think it's important that if we're really going to make a life change, then making a declaration is really important. If you're not willing to come to the front of a room, then you, you won't change. Father, I just pray this morning that no one would leave this place this morning unchanged. That, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the boldness to respond to you. Father, you know our hearts. You can write the letter of our life right now and expose everything that's short and unfinished. But, Lord, the, the letter isn't finished yet. You're still writing the script and I pray this morning, Father, that you will write that my love is renewed, your passion is burning, 
a new fire has come. The blockage is gone. The rivers are flowing. We're back in that place where our first love is infatuating again. I'll leave it with you this morning. You respond the way that the Lord leads you.